0: The Jodcast, an audio nuisance visible from space, with Ian Morrison, Haratina Mobisani, Samuel Less, Josh Hayes, Joel Williams, Emma Alexander and Michael Wright. The Jobcast, September 2019 edition. And welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh Hayes, uh, and joining me in the studio today are Joel Williams and Emma Alexander. Hello, how are we? Hello, we are very well. Well, I am very well. How are you, Emma? I
1: am. I am also very well, thank you. Not done this in a while, so Yeah, no,
0: I, I, I think it's it's the first time in a while that any of us have been back in the back in the presenting chairs. Um, in the show this time, uh, Emma is interviewing Fabio Antonini about nuclear clusters and supermassive black holes, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogastanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the September night sky in the North and Southern Hemisphere. But first, before all that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news.
2: Hello, an interesting variety of news this month, with Chandrayaan-2 splitting into its lander and orbiter, the synthetic catalog of black holes. An interesting 3D printed binocular telescope. Firstly, India's Chandrayaan-2, developed by the Indian Space Research Organisation, ISRO, has split into its lander craft and orbiter. The mission, launched on 22nd of July, is India's attempt to land at the lunar south pole, an area of the moon not really explored by landers as of yet. It contains equipment for measuring elemental composition and abundance, as well as high quality cameras for mapping, and equipment to detect subsurface water ice, among other things. The lander has been performing maneuvers to prepare it for this, with a lunar orbit insertion on August 20th to get it to an orbit of 114 by 18,072 kilometres in a large ellipse. You see, the way it works is that the orbit was raised around... The way this craft was aimed to get towards the Moon was to go into a high-Earth orbit, keep raising its orbit around the Earth before a manoeuvre which transitioned it from an Earth orbit to a lunar orbit, and then steadily lowering the altitude of the lunar orbit to bring it in close to the Moon. So it could use its onboard propulsion system to reduce this orbit from the lunar orbit insertion, first going to 118 by 4,412 kilometres on August 21st, and 179 by 1,412 kilometres on August 28th, before 124 by 164 kilometres on August 30th. On the 1st of September, the final orbital manoeuvre was made, achieving an orbit of 119 by 127 kilometres. This worked well and meant that 1315 International Standard Time, on the 2nd of September, the lander could successfully be separated from the orbiter, where it will now attempt to gently fall in again reducing its orbit and moving downwards, to make a soft landing on the Moon on September the 7th. This is so far good news. While the difficult job of landing is still to come, this is a successful set of manoeuvres detachment will allow the astronomers to breathe a sigh of relief. Everything has gone smoothly so far and with the lander detached the bare minimum is that the orbiter is well set for science. It would be incredibly unlucky now if something bad was to happen to it. According to the ISRO, all systems are healthy and both craft are faring well. And if you'd like to see some footage of what has been done already, the SRO website has some very good images of the lunar surface taken by the terrain mapping camera, which was, of course, taking images while this craft was in orbit. Also in the news was an interesting synthetic catalogue of black holes. Scientists Olejek, Brzezinski, Bulik and Samolevska have made a synthetic catalogue of black holes in the Milky Way. You see, at the moment, detecting black holes is very difficult. You've got gravitational wave detectors, which have found a few from things like mergers, and some are inferred from interactions with other objects, such as a binary companion. So when it comes to our next experiments in attempting to look for and find black holes in our galaxy, how do we get some idea of where to look and what we might find? Well, this paper is an attempt to use cosmological simulations and our knowledge of galaxies and stars to make a catalogue of the properties and numbers of black holes that we should expect in the Milky Way, roughly. There's been some research before giving figures such as estimates for the number of black holes that we expect in our galaxy and the number of those in binaries. The authors have made an open-access database containing useful statistical properties of black holes based on their cosmological models. In this case, common configurations, numbers of black holes, masses, velocities, places of origin. For example, are these in the bulge of the Milky Way? What do we expect to see in the disk? What do we expect to see in the halo around that? and this could be a useful guide for missions which aim to detect black holes, search in more effective ways. Finally, an interesting 3D printed binocular telescope was developed by an amateur astronomer and astronomy science communicator called Robert Asimendi. It's an interesting telescope, so I'd like to talk about it. It's called the Analog Sky Drifter. Now, the idea of using 3D printing to allow kit-built scientific telescopes is by no means a new thing. A good example of this would be the PiCon, a design for a low-cost Newtonian-style telescope, but with a Raspberry Pi camera where the angled mirror would normally be. Another example might be the Ultrascope project, which was aimed at making a fully automated robotic observatory using a mix of 3D printed and laser-cut parts with an Arduino and shield to do the remote operation of the telescope. The Analog Skydrifter is interesting in that it's a binocular telescope designed for ease of use. You see, binoculars are very useful when you're looking through them compared to a single eyepiece. The design is something that is made to allow easy and fast focusing, comparable to the way you'd use a regular set of binoculars. Generally, binocular telescopes are less commonly made than single eyepiece designs. And if you think about it, you can see the reason why. You've got far more lenses to design, align, and put in place, as well as multiple components that are repeated and mirrored because of the fact you're using binoculars. And if you're an amateur astronomer in the past... Trying to fabricate these with woodwork or metalwork skills would be incredibly time-consuming because you have to design everything twice, but with the advent of things like 3D printing and computer-aided design, this is far less of a pain. Now, what I find interesting is the designer made this to have a telescope which worked with his astigmatism, which is the problem with the curvature of the cornea in your eye, which impedes the ability to focus light onto your retina, leading to blurred vision. Being able to then put both eyes on the sky and have your brain's full ability, dedicated to putting images together like it usually does when you're seeing things, makes a binoscope useful if that's something you have, or for a number of other vision defects or vision difficulties. It's also interesting because it shows the power now that amateur astronomers have to improve their ability to see the sky. It'll be interesting to see what other designs and ideas come out of giving those with the passion and time the tools they need to improve their work. This could be, if anything, just another small step along a very long and interesting road. But that's all for the news this week. Let's head back to the studio.
3: Thanks for that, Michael. Now, Emma interviews Fabio Antonini about nuclear clusters and supermassive black holes.
1: I'm here with Dr. Fabio Antonini, who is an STSC Rutherford Fellow in the Astrophysics Group at the University of Surrey in the UK. Um, So Dr Antonini was a postdoctoral fellow previously at Northwestern University and has also been a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. Uh, Prior to that, he received a PhD in astrophysical sciences and technologies at the Rochester Institute of Technology. So welcome to the Jobcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So it seems like you have uh, a wide uh, area of interest in your research, including galaxy formation and evolution, stellar dynamics near supermassive black holes, and also the computational side of things as well. So there's really lots to get into here. And I'm looking forward to the colloquium that you're giving here at JVCA this afternoon, titled Nuclear Clusters and Supermassive Black Holes. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about this area of your research, please?
4: So my research focuses mostly on... uh, um making predictions for the gravitational wave sources that instruments like uh, LIGO uh, have detected few last uh, years and will also detect in the, in the future. And uh, so the main question, the big question is, well, I should say, one of the fundamental questions for this type of research is how uh, you actually produce in the universe these uh, gravitational wave sources, how they are uh, formed in nature. And um, there is a number of uh, possibilities that have been proposed. So what I, uh, what I look at is the possibility that uh, these sources could form in a dense uh, stellar environments, like for example the clusters uh, of stars that are observed at the center of, of galaxies, and in fact most nearby galaxies, uh, including our own galaxy hosts, are very dense and massive star cluster at their center, which are uh, an environment where the gravitational wave sources, again, that have been detected by LIGO, can, can form.
1: So how has your research been impacted by uh, the, the actual detection of these gravitational waves by LIGO? Because it was only a couple of years uh, ago that that actually happened, so what was the difference been in your research before and after those predictions came true?
4: Well, that's a good question. So before, we didn't really know whether this uh, source is actually this... Um, so let's say first what LIGO actually has detected. So LIGO has detected the merger of uh, two black holes uh, spiraling uh, uh, towards each other and merging with each other. Um, this was uh, 10 uh, binary black hole mergers plus one uh, neutron star binary merger, so I focused mostly on the formation of binary black holes. Uh, and before the Lego detection, we didn't really know that these sources actually exist, so my, my work was mostly making uh, theoretical predictions, and these detections have really changed the field, because now uh, these predictions can be actually tested by, uh, by the detections. And so my models, before the detections, were making some predictions, for example, for the masses, for the distance of these sources, where we should observe them, how often we should observe them. And now we actually can test these predictions. We only have 10 detections, but eventually we will collect, uh, LIGO will collect hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of binary black hole merger signals. And so this will really help to to test the models that I I put forward uh, even before these detections were made.
1: So what is it that's particularly interesting about black hole binaries? Is it um, them as uh, objects in themselves, or is it, uh, for example, what they can tell us about other areas of astrophysics and and physics?
4: Yes, so the interest is uh, most astrophysical. So the origin of uh, uh, black holes uh, is from uh, the death of massive stars, so they form from the collapse of very massive stars, with masses larger than uh, approximately 20 times the mass of the sun. So the evolution of the stars is often uh, affected by their companions, sometimes, well, most of the times actually, that you see uh, massive stars, they often, you most of the time, find that they have companions, and if they have companions uh, and both produce black holes, then you end up with a binary black hole. and. Uh, whether these black holes merge or not actually tells you something about the, the evolution prior to the, the formation of the black holes. And so you can learn, for example, about the uh, physical processes that lead to the formation of the black holes and the, also the physical process that takes place during the evolution of their uh, stellar progenitors. And uh, in terms of the star clusters that are uh, the main focus of my research, she also tells you about the... It's a unique way actually to probe the compact object populations in uh, in these systems that otherwise are inaccessible by other means uh, also by by this you you can also infer something about the the formation and evolution of these clusters. and uh, this is important because as from observations we also know the properties of these clusters uh, relate actually to the properties of the galaxies they inhabit, and these clusters also contain supermassive black holes. So understanding how the smaller black holes uh, merge in these clusters might shed some light on uh, the evolution of, of, these, of these clusters, but also maybe on the evolution and formation of supermassive black holes and also the, the galaxies they, they inhabit.
1: How do you go about uh, tackling the, the theoretical aspects of this work? So you, you mentioned it's a theoretical work in this. Uh, does it involve... Uh, computer simulations, uh, a lot of number crunching, uh, what exactly goes into this, this research?
4: Most of the research is done with uh, computational uh, simulations, with uh, numerical simulations, the most on uh, supercomputers. Uh, and uh, because in this case you, you want to, to understand the evolution of, uh, from 100,000 to uh, millions of stars, and you want to resolve the, the single gravitational interactions between the single stars, uh, and also because relativistic corrections to the motion become important, of course you want to resolve, for example, the merger of the black holes where uh, relativity is important, and you, you want to simulate this cluster very efficiently but also very uh, precisely uh, including all the real and relevant physics that, uh, that you have to. And so for doing this we, uh, we use GPUs, graphics processing units, uh, which are often also used for, uh, for video games. Uh, it's the same uh, kind of hardware that uh, you use for your, uh, your PlayStation or uh, your Xbox. Uh, and we take advantage of the acceleration provided by this hardware to run our uh, simulations and ad- understand and to understand the long-term evolution of these the systems, which otherwise would be impossible to model, I would say.
1: And um, as, as I mentioned before, now, now that we've got the, the LIGO gravitational wave input, is that now feeding back into your simulations and allowing you to fine-tune them?
4: I wouldn't say so. Oh. I, I mean, I would say that uh, so now that we have observations, there are new puzzles arising from these observations, and so uh, my simulations might be able to uh, address some of these, uh, uh, these questions that, that come from, the, from observations. So, for example, the 1st uh, LIGO lico-detections are detections of black holes that have uh, large masses. These are uh, 30 times the mass of the sun, and uh, some of the theoretical models uh, have an issue in reproducing this, uh, this large mass. In this sense, the detections of the sources and the, having uh, the statistical distribution for the physical properties of the source is important because my models could explain some of these uh, properties, right?
1: And where would you like to see this research going into the future?
4: Uh, well, in the, the future, it, uh, it's very bright. So the LIGO will uh, keep observing uh, uh, in the coming years and uh, will uh, detect uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, uh, gravitational wave sources, which, again, uh, will be, I will be able to uh, compare to the predictions uh, from my models, which uh, uh, will provide insights on these models. But it's bright also because there will be new uh, new detectors. Uh, there will be the laser interferometer space antenna. Uh, this is uh, the same concept as LIGO, but now in space. So there will be lasers in space detecting gravitational waves. And uh, this time, uh, the uh, they will be detecting gravitational waves coming from uh, not longer stellar black holes like uh, like LIGO. So black holes formed from the evolution of massive stars. But LISA will detect the gravitational waves from uh, the merger of supermassive black holes. So the black holes that we find uh, at the center of most nearby, uh, nearby galaxies. I've just
1: realised we, we have talked about um, gravitational waves and LIGO before on the podcast. Uh, but just to give our listeners maybe a bit of a reminder if they're still scratching their heads thinking, oh, where have I heard all this before? Um, could you just give a little bit of an overview as to how, for example, LIGO detects uh, gravitational waves?
4: Okay, so there are many details that go into how the gravitational waves have been detected by LIGO, but the concept, of the idea behind LIGO is actually quite simple. Uh, LIGO is a Michelson interferometer. You uh, you start with a laser beam. The laser beam is split into uh, perpendicular laser beams that go into tubes, which are four kilometers each. Uh, they have to be precisely the same, uh, the same length. At the end of the uh, of the tubes, the beam is bounces back off uh, of reflecting mirror, and uh, at the uh, detector, the beams uh, are added together. So, this uh, in during this process, they uh, they cancel each other. So, in a normal situation, you don't have any any signal coming uh, because the beams cancel each other uh, at the detector. Now, as a gravitational wave passes through the instrument, through, through LIGO, this changes the length of the, of the tubes and, uh, um, and changes also the interference pattern of the, uh, of the laser beams. And so at this point, uh, at the detector, you will detect some light, you will detect a film, and you will detect uh, uh, gravitational waves.
1: Just to go back to what you've talked about for uh, your colloquium this afternoon, you mentioned something called the final parsec problem, which sounds very interesting. Uh, it's a very grand name. Uh, yeah. what, what, what is that problem and, and how do you go about solving it?
4: Yeah, so this problem has to do with uh, the merger of uh, uh, supermassive black holes, and therefore it's relevant with for uh, uh, for Lisa for so the space mission that will be launched in 2030s. So it is really uh, the problem is how to make two supermassive black holes merge in less than a Hubble time. So
1: Hubble time is the Hubble time, the- time
4: is the edge of the yeah. universe. So uh, you want these mergers to happen in less than a Hubble time; otherwise, they would not be, uh, of course, observable. Uh, this is a problem that goes back to the, to the 80s, uh, and uh, um, it's really a, a real prediction of theoretical and numerical, uh, uh, numerical models, which show that uh, that during the merger of two galaxies, uh, the supermassive black holes contained initially in the, uh, at the centers of, uh, of these two galaxies will not be able to merge in uh, uh, a time which is short enough for, uh, for them to be detected by, uh, by us. And uh, so my work has focused on also on this, uh, on this topic, and uh, uh, more recently we have uh, uh, found a quite natural solution to the, uh, to the final perfect problem. So now we think that actually this is no longer a problem, and the supermassive black hole binaries are able to merge uh, in any uh, galaxy merger remnant in less than a hubble time which is good news for Lisa.
1: Yes, good. you always <laughs> wanting things to happen within the age of the universe, as you said. Um, one, one thing that caught my eye when I was uh, look, looking at your areas of research is that you also say that you're interested in the dynamics of exoplanet systems, which seems like a, a very different field from what we've been talking about previously. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your interest there?
4: Yes, I mean, it is, yeah, you're right. It is different, but... Uh, it's still uh, gravitational interactions between, uh, you know, uh, N bodies. So, in this sense, it is not that different from what I'm uh, usually doing uh, with my research. And uh, in this case, I, I'm looking at the formation of hot Jupiters. These are um, when we uh, started to detect planets. The, the first detections were detections of uh, very uh, massive and gaseous planets like uh, like Jupiter, but uh, uh, instead of being like many many aeus away from from the sun these jupiters were found very close to the to their uh, to their host star uh, and so this represents uh, really a puzzle uh, because we don't know how to form uh, such big planets at such a short distance from the from the star and so my uh, my research focuses on uh, on this topic and how to form hot jupiters in this uh, in these systems
1: so it's a case of applying very similar techniques to your other work, but just in a slightly different astrophysical context.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, is, it is a very similar uh, numerical framework, uh, but applies to, to another uh, and different astrophysical uh, environment. Um,
1: I'll just ask in general, uh, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment or that you've worked on previously?
4: Uh, we are working on uh, something very exciting right now that I, I think it is very exciting, which is the evolution of massive stars in multiple systems. Um, so observations uh, uh, of uh, massive stars, uh, this is again a result from observations, show that uh, most of massive stars, uh, which again are the progenitors of the uh, stellar black holes or neutron stars that we uh, observe with LIGO, uh, are not single. Uh, but they are in binaries or even in higher multiplicity systems, so they have often companions. And, and so what we are finding is that the in, that the presence of these uh, um, uh, companions really changes in important ways the uh, evolution of the of the stars, and this wasn't taken into account uh, uh, account before. And now we're investigating how uh, this process can affect the evolution of massive stars and maybe. Uh, how the interaction between, uh, uh, an inner uh, black hole binary and um, external components can lead to the formation of uh, black hole mergers. And, of course, whether this can explain at least a fraction of the LIGO sources.
1: So is this what you're going to be working on going into the future then?
4: Yeah. This is uh, s- uh, something I will uh, I have already worked on and the uh, uh, results are very encouraging, but I, I will keep working on it in the coming years for sure.
1: Do you do anything relating to the black hole in, in the centre of our galaxy?
4: Yes, it's actually the topic of my PhD thesis, so mm-hmm. you can ask me. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, so what, what did you do for your PhD on, on the uh, oh, centre okay. of
4: our galaxy? So, um, uh, so in, at the centre of our galaxy there is a um, a very massive cluster of stars. This is uh, much more massive than uh, all the other clusters that we within our galaxy, like for example globular or open clusters. The mass of this cluster is 10 million solar masses, so there are approximately 10 million stars in this cluster. And to give you an idea of the densities in this cluster, um, the, de- the closest star to the Sun, uh, Proxima Centauri, is about one parsec from, from the Sun. In the same distance uh, from the center of the galaxy to one parsec, there are uh, approximately one million, uh, one million stars. So this means that uh, in this environment, dynamical interactions, gravitational interactions between stars and black holes are uh, very important. Uh, Another important ingredient is that in the center of our galaxy galaxy, there is a supermassive uh, supermassive black hole. And uh, um, in fact, observations of uh, the galactic center have shown uh, that there is approximately 20 uh, young stars. Uh, These are called S-stars they are uh, B-type main sequence stars so they are very young approximately from 10 to 100 mega years old uh, so much younger than our than our sun and uh, uh, their orbital periods around the galactic center are only uh, from a few tens of years to hundreds of years so um, uh, groups from two groups one from the UCLA and one from uh, the Max Planck Institute in uh, Garching have tracked the orbits of these stars over uh, the last 20 years uh, and the study of this orbit has actually provided with a, uh, with a very strong empirical evidence for the presence of a black hole at the center of uh, uh, our galaxy and I would say that uh, uh, actually this is the strongest uh, evidence for the existence of, of black holes in the universe. And, uh, and so my, uh, my work was uh, aimed to understand how the supermassive black holes affect the long-term evolution of the stars uh, and black holes in the galactic centre through uh, gravitational interactions
1: Brilliant Well, I think I'll wrap it up there uh, Thank you ever so much for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you <laughs> uh, It's been a pleasure and I look forward to your plug for you this afternoon
4: Thank you, bye <laughs> Thanks for that Emma
0: um, So now we come on to my favourite part of the podcast because it's the part where we get to chat and mess around uh, but uh, the odds ends um, So we can start, I think, this week with, or this episode, with Emma. Sure. So, what have you got for us?
1: Um, we've got some space drama. Ooh. got, got a bit of space gossip, <clears throat> or just, I don't know. It doesn't have to be gossip, but here we go. Gossip. Gossip. That is the worst word I've ever heard. Spossip. Thanks. Thanks for that, Josh. Spossip. Anyway... Uh, The European Space Agency um, has said that it has had to make an emergency manoeuvre of one of its Earth science satellites in order to avoid a potential collision with a SpaceX Starlink satellite. The ESA Operations Twitter account documented its collision avoidance manoeuvre which happened on the 2nd of September. Uh, It involved ESA's Aeolus satellite, uh, which is the first satellite mission to acquire profiles of the Earth wind on a global scale. Uh, It's got a single instrument, a Doppler wind LiDAR, uh, which currently can probe the lowest 30 kilometres of our atmosphere, so really important stuff for weather monitoring. So it's not something you'd want to collide with and take out, but it turned out there was the possibility of that happening with one of SpaceX's Starlink satellites, uh, which we have discussed on the broadcast before, I think back in June, after they would first launched.
0: So um, Emma, can you just remind us what uh, Starlink is?
1: Yes, yeah, so there are so-called mega constellation of satellites um, launched earlier this year um, by Elon Musk's private space company, SpaceX. So initially 60 were launched, um, but there are plans of deploying up to 12,000 with the aim of providing a new space-based internet communication system. So it seems like it's got some kind of good, honest intentions, but many astronomers have raised concerns about their impact on optical and radio astronomy uh, due to their sheer number and brightness and and the effects that they're going to have on optical and radio astronomy. Um, And a key part of this is that unlike most satellites, they can uh, autonomously change their orbits, uh, meaning that their motion is is hard to predict and and compensate for in in your observations.
0: Okay, so Aeolus was on... Uh, a known trajectory, is what we're saying. And then SpaceX satellite was... Had, had it changed trajectory, or was there a... What 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 exactly was going on with...
1: Yeah, so it, at first it wasn't clear. So a lot of this played out over Twitter. Um, and at first it... it Twitter, what?
0: that well-known place that, you know, talking about your satellite...
1: I mean, trajectory. hey, it's where, it's where he users first started talking about, about it, and it's where a lot of the discussion took place. Um, So, yeah, initially it was a bit suspicious because um, this all happened at an orbit of uh, 220 kilometres, which is lower than the usual Starlink orbit. So that was initially a bit suspicious. You know, is this um, satellite defunct? Have they lost control of it? Um, But it turns out it it could have been purposely lowered um, to that altitude to test low-altitude satellite controllability. And uh, calculations suggested that Aeolus would have passed within 10. Kilometers of, of Starlink um, Starlink Forty Four, which was this this satellite, uh, which ten kilometers does it seems quite a long way away, but in terms of satellite distances, that's that's very very close.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not a. The, the error bar on that is is com- comparable. You don't want to be messing around with it. Was the, I, I think because I saw I saw some of this. So um, were, they were saying that the the odds of collision were about one in ten, one in a thousand.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there's a threshold of one in ten thousand um, that they say is a is a safe. Collision risk level, um, but yeah, no, it, it was ten times that um, calculated to be to be one and one in a thousand. Um, so yeah, ten times the threshold for an avoidance uh, maneuver.
0: Okay, so and and this definitely was a deliberate like they were they were it was it definitely this this test because I I, I saw something similar that was theorising that it was a satellite that had lost they it failed in its original launch and it was de- being deorbited. And so there was concern that actually SpaceX themselves didn't actually have any control over where the satellite was going.
1: That is that is one of the theories, um, and it it could have been that it could have been that it was a sort of a control test of, of of a lower altitude.
0: So have SpaceX not confirmed?
1: They the the only communication that there's been from SpaceX on this so far was they sent a very short email to the European Space Agency apparently. Um, to to let them know um, that they had no intention of moving their Starlink satellite, basically implying that it would have to be ESA that moved their satellite if they wanted if they wanted to do that. Oh, good.
0: So we've got a private company who are doing whatever they want in space now, telling international space agencies what to
1: do. Well, ov- obviously we don't know the full details mm. of this, but it's all still very speculative at the time of recording. Um, it, it is unusual. Some people have thought that uh, the European Space Agency have, have made this into a thing and have tweeted to announce this avoidance manoeuvre um, because they also say that they performed 28 collision avoidance manoeuvres last year, uh, mostly to avoid defunct satellites that, that are out of control, yeah. just the general space junk that we have orbiting the Earth. Um, so it's a bit. don't quite know why this one in particular has been singled out. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it definitely raises a lot of these questions. Yeah, as we put more and more satellites up for both scientific and commercial purposes, you know, what what is the protocol in these situations?
3: Mm. And who gets to decide the rules?
1: Because, mm. you,
3: know, you know, ideally no one country or organisation owns space.
0: Yes, and I think, so my, my point of view of that is that of those two agents, of, the, of those two organisations, ESA are far more well are, are in a far better position to be the ones that are inputting on those rules because they're not a they're, they're not a private company whose only drive is ultimately for profit. Like that's I I I I there's something about having a private company all over the lower low Earth orbit refusing to move and just because they've got so many satellites, are almost they always seem to be willing to crash their satellites because they have so many and they're putting up so many that losing one is actually not the biggest deal for them. So they're able to, they're able to bully. I
1: mean, it, it it could be as as you suggested, just that it, it was a satellite yeah. that they had lost control of and they d- don't necessarily want to admit that. So may, maybe that's where this has come from. Again, this is all all speculation. Yeah, no, it,
0: it, it, it is all speculation. Um, so I think that the one of the main things that this actually highlights as an issue is the behaviour of astronomers as a community. So listeners may or may not be aware about the controversy surround um, the controversy in Hawaii at the moment surrounding the TMT,
1: um, 30 telescope. the
0: thirty meter telescope, um, which is a telescope that is due to be built on. Monakea in Hawaii, and I'm gonna, cho- I'm choosing my words very carefully here, and if I, if I say something wrong, I apologize. Um, but this, uh, so Monakea is, to my understanding, it's a, it, it's sacred land to Hawaiian natives. And there is, there are, there are ongoing protests about whether or not, uh, the TMT should be built there at all. Um, and so there are there are people who are blocking construction and who are like sort of generally making it so that the telescope can't be built. And the reaction from some of the astrono- astronomical community has been to say, well, you're in the way of progress and you're kind of like, you, the, the, the telescope must be built and it must be built here. And the way that that kind of behaves is sort of as if astronomers own the sky. Um, and that we have the absolute divine right to say no we must build here we must have access to the sky at all times and I think the thing with Starlink is that it has this sort of noble cause behind it of internet for all as Emma said Um, but the it's perhaps not being uh, the astronomers reaction to it is to say no you're in our sky um, when actually, what we should be saying is, no, we share this sky with you. Um, can we enter a dialogue? But it's 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 two way, right? So we need to, as a community, accept that things like Starlink will eventually go up, like whether or not it's now, whether or not it's later, that will happen. But we and we need to work with these people, but similarly, they need to work with us, and I think that's the that's the thing that upsets me most about this story is that given the opportunity to say, Hey, sorry, we've messed up here. Um, can you move your satellite? Which is like, you know, a normal human way to word the, we're not moving our satellite rather than we're not moving our satellite. Given that opportunity, SpaceX didn't take it. And that's, that's a problem for me. Um, and I think it's, it's, all all parties in this in this whole debate need to actually realize that no this is a shared space um, and we need to actually take into account everybody's feelings everybody's vested interests everybody's uh, the things that everybody stands to gain from it and get to a point where we can all actually work together okay um so I hijacked the end of that Anna sorry it's, it's, um,
1: it's fine I think it I think the, these discussions are really important to have and it, we are getting to the point where, yeah, with the satellites, we are filling the sky with satellites and we, we need to put policies in place, we need to have these discussions now to establish protocols. And, and hopefully move forward from there and move forward to a, a productive future full of lovely scientific things and we're all happy together and there's no politics involved whatsoever. What a
0: wonderful, positive note to end on. The concept yes. of no politics. Wouldn't that be lovely? <clears throat> um, Joel, have you got anything equally cheery for us?
3: Yes. Oh, uh, that was say. not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's uh, cheery. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty exciting um, but that's because I have a uh, a particular, uh, I like things that are space exploration-y, let's put it that way. Um, so NASA, this is still about satellites, interestingly enough, uh, but NASA uh, on August 23rd confirmed that uh, their deep space atomic clock that they launched in June 2019 has successfully activated. Now, the aim of this deep space atomic clock is to test uh, the technology for autonomous deep space travel. So the idea with this atomic clock is it gives you really good timings um, and allows you to measure distances really well in space, because you bounce signal from where your atomic clock is to the Earth and back, and use the time it takes for that signal to travel there and back to measure the distance you are from the Earth. And what this allows you to do is, rather than using uh, the lengthy normal process of communicating with a station back on Earth, them, them working out what the time is there, working out what the time is on the spacecraft you've sent, and then communicating that information in order to allow the spacecraft to establish where it is in the solar system, this would allow you to do it in a much quicker and much more autonomous way. So this is with the aim of at some point sending some deep space autonomous mission out into the solar system that uh, would be able to much more easily Navigate itself through the solar system without having to have as
0: much human control and interaction. So, by having a clock on board the spacecraft itself that we are confident is accurate, you're then able to pre-program um, routines or whatever, like maneuvers. Yes. So, so that you don't have to sort of keep checking.
3: Yeah, the idea is that the spacecraft can actually. Figure out where it is on its own. Current autonomous spacecraft usually get told where they are by some home base or home home station. Okay. Um. So NASA communicates to the spacecraft where it is right now, whereas it it would know where it was itself and would be able to uh, plan its own route much better.
0: Do so you say that most uh, satellites currently? Not satellites, Sorry.
3: but uh, so probe spacecraft, deep space kind of spacecraft.
0: Um. So my the The alternative to that, I think, is using star charts and sort of mapping from where you, the positions of stars. Correct.
3: Yes. Yeah, but that's much more complicated, and you have to also have correctly predict where the positions of stars will be in the future. And
1: I remember that was a pro- that was a problem for the Rosetta spacecraft um, because as it was. Getting closer into the comet it was visiting, all the, all the dust uh, that was around, it looked just like stars, and it confused Rosetta's uh, navigation systems, if I remember mm. rightly. Don't quote me on that.
3: So the potential I see is that you don't have to necessarily just bounce the signal off Earth, right? You can bounce it off any object to work out your distance to that object, and therefore also avoid collisions with, say, uh, un- unknown asteroids.
0: Um, So the the signal is being being sent from the probe. So the signal, yeah, it's being sent from the
3: atomic clock, uh, or the probe itself, and then it uses the atomic clock to determine how long it took to send and receive said signal. So so it's it's space sonar. Yeah, it's basically space sonar. It's very simple, um, it's a very simple idea, it's just, it requires such an accurate clock to work. And that's why you need something like an atomic clock, which has a really high precision and um, generally, won't lose time, like say a pendulum clock. It wouldn't work in space because a pendulum clock requires a yeah, gra- totally gravity to. Yeah.
1: Josh was gesturing at me because I was going to say something, but then I was just going to say space owner, Spona? which w- would not have been a particularly great.
0: <laughs> Why?
3: <laughs> Why would you do this? It's <laughs> <Awesome.
0: laughs> I had a, qu- I had an actual question, um, and. Sponar has completely thrown me. (laughs) Sponar has thrown, are you? Uh, I'll stop this. Um, So, the satellite that NASA are testing it on, is this in low Earth orbit at the moment? Or, like, so where where is it? Oh, that is a good question. Like, because I presume they've not, like, thrown it away. No.
3: (laughs) It is in orbit, is what this article says.
0: Okay. Presumably around Earth. Yeah.
3: It's in orbit around Earth. I don't know if it's in low Earth orbit. I think the idea is to send it, is to sending them uh, send it further and further away to increase the uh, radius of its orbit. Okay. Just to test the technology, see if it continues to work yeah. well and precisely as it gets further away from the Earth. Okay. With the, aid of, you know, with the aim of testing the technology in deep space.
0: Do we know how long they're expecting this to take be- until we see it deployed on future missions?
3: Well, I think with all pathfinding missions like this, you, you don't really have an idea in mind as to, as to whether you will be able to even deploy it. You, you need to test the technology and see whether it's actually something useful uh, or whether actually it was a good idea that actually isn't practically that helpful. So if it turns out to be practically useful, then uh, the, the other thing we don't know about the timing is... What deep space missions, autonomous deep space missions, NASA has lined up or even funded? In the, in this sounds like it would be a very far future um, technology that would be used in in much late, you know, deep space missions yeah. to come. But those deep space missions are very much unfunded, right? You, we don't, you know, the NASA's funding is done. Is they budget yearly? They they don't know what's coming in. Maybe. 10, 20 years time, they don't know what their budget size is in say 10, 20 years time. That's very dependent on, uh, what the federal government says their budget's allowed
0: to be, for example. And so. That was very carefully put. Well done.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> um, cool. Have you got anything, any, any final atomic minutiae to add to?
3: Um if you're interested in the choice of atom, Oh yes, no, um, I've, I've, I've got. Um, they are I've got
0: a sweepstake on this.
3: It is a really. <laughs> I've,
0: I've, I've, I've got a fantasy uh, fantasy league going with with, a, with the periodic with, table. Yeah, with the periodic table um, as to whether or not uh, particular elements are used for different mm-hmm. things. I'm I'm going for is it, rubidium or I'll, cesium? I'll
1: go now. I'm going. You take rubidium.
0: cesium. Okay. It's a mercury ion. Oh,
1: park,
0: okay. Unfortunately,
3: which was my pick on the sweepstake. Oh, it won't. Well. <laughs> we don't have a sweep God does not encourage gambling. Okay, can you give me my channel back then? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I slip under the table.
0: (laughs) Okay. That's me. That's you. You're done. Um, Moving on. Brilliant. Um, So, finally, um, in what Joel maintains is a tradition of whenever the two of us are on, I'm going to talk about Star Trek without ever really having watched any of the Like traditional Star Trek things, Um, so (laughs) why do you do this? um, Because I like to, I I like to watch you twitch. Um, um, So there is in Star Trek, and uh, quite often with any space sci-fi based um, program, there's there's often like the ability to scan for life. So these, you're you're in orbit around a planet, and someone says. Is there any? Are there any life forms on the planet? Like, how do we do that? Like, in in my head, that was always kind of like an infrared camera, hmm. like, and you just sort of look for heat signatures. And then I kind of thought about that a bit more and was like, oh, actually, but what if everything's lizards? Um, like, it at at that, at that point,
1: so it's it's not just a life scanner; it's an intelligent life scanner.
0: Well, so no, um, it's it, it's it's a life scanner, um, and the so I I preface all of this with it's uh new technology um, and new thoughts that have come about that might actually be how these sci-fi point at a a planet, does this have life on it, um, how these technologies might come about. So, um, to start with, um, I need to sort of talk about what it is we look for on planets. So, for if we're looking for life normally... Well, right now, we kind of look for what we call biosignatures. So things like oxygen, things like water, things like methane. So these are all, um, well, a lot of these are what we call organic molecules. uh, And we call them that because they are required for life, as we understand it. So all life on Earth requires water. Um, But they can exist without it. So you can have water naturally forming, you can have methane naturally forming, oxygen can can exist without biology. Um, and so actually using those molecules to say there is life on that planet
1: isn't accurate. And on the flip side as well, how sure are we that life needs water, that life needs oxygen. Are we very Earth-centric in in this? Are we thinking, well, we've got the sample size of one, we know that life needs X, Y, Z here on Earth, therefore we assume we must need it elsewhere in space as well. Yeah,
0: it, it's a fair point. Um, the the sort of astrobiology counter-argument to that is, well, we've got to start somewhere. Um, like, we, we have no evidence for life of any other kind and there's even the question of like, would we know that we were looking at it? So we kind of have to work with what we know. Um, and what we know is that there is a a way to look at the molecules that are actually used by life um, and, bi- and biological processes and see how they interact with light. So there is a there's a type of polarization uh, called circular polarization, which is if you look at if you look at some light, it's either left or right-handed, circularly polarised. Um, and we have ways of measuring whether or not some light is left or right, or a mixture of the two, and in what proportions they are. We, we can do that. Joel is nodding because this is basically what he does with the CMB in a nutshell. Um, but the there are, then, to move away from astronomy very quickly and look at chemistry... If you put together a load of atoms into a molecule, um, some of those have what's known as chirality, which is where they're the exact they're made up of the exact same atoms. So the the structure and is the same. Sorry, the components are the same, but the structure is mirrored. So you have what are then known as left and right-handed molecules. So there's no way to rotate one to put it on the other. You have to you would have to reflect it in a mirror, um, and Naturally, you get left and right-handed versions of the same molecule appearing at the same frequencies, the same, the same amounts. Um, but biology screws this up. Um, so all of the amino acids in humans and most mammals and most, uh, most living things are left-handed. Um, and so any amino acids that you see are far, far more likely to be left-handed because it's just favoured. Uh, by our biology, chiral molecules can uh, you you can measure their um, abundance by looking at how much circularly polarized light you have. So a left-handed molecule produces left-handed light, and a right-handed molecule produces right-handed light. And so if you were to look at the light coming from a um, being reflected by a planet or or, or a source, but it being reflected by something. By looking at the amount of circularly polarised light you have, you can tell whether or not it's organic. Um, and so there, there's a, a paper that came out looking at this, um, and the, the people that did it, they, they came up with it, they tested it in a lab, they got some uh, ivy leaves, and sort of like looked at the light that was being reflected by them and, and measured the amount of circularly polarised light and found that there was a bias towards left-handed. Um, and then that bias kind of decayed as the leaves decayed. And so they went onto the roof of their building. And there was a nearby sports field that they pointed their scanner at and saw absolutely nothing. Um, so this is in the Netherlands. And um, they they kind of watched it for about three days. And then eventually someone went, Hang, shall we just go and have a look? And it turned out that it was one of the few sports pitches in the Netherlands that uses artificial grass. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my days. Yeah, but,
1: and three days and they
0: didn't think to go check. I, 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 I don't know the exact okay. time scales involved.
1: Um
0: but it's 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 Yeah, it's afterta. but they <laughs> um, but they then tried this on a forest that was a few miles away instead and just immediately saw the signals. So they they they're working now on a designing an instrument for the ISS um, to try and map the circular polarization um, that they see on earth to try and work out what you might then actually see if you were looking um, at Earth from a much far, much further away and how do all those signals blend together, um, so that you would then be able to try and look at an individual exoplanet um, and look at the circularly polarised light coming from that.
1: It seems like quite a big jump to go from looking at a forest a few miles away to looking at an entire planet Light years away. Oh yes.
3: There's <laughs> also surely. So the concern would be: Are there things that would sit in between us and the exoplanet that would also generate circular polarizations?
0: Yes, but you can check that by looking at the sort the host star, right? So the light from the host star would oh, would, sure, would go through that. the same okay. medium. So you can you can retract you can you can remove all of that you would be able to, after a bunch of data processing, just get down to the raw signal from light being reflected from the host star by the planet and then seeing the circular polarisation of that light. The problem there, as Emma raised, is um, it's, a, it's a heck of a jump. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amount of light being reflected by the exoplanet is, is tiny. It's about 10 billion times fainter than the host start. Um,
1: so realistically, is this only going to be on planets that we can already directly image?
0: Um, so, no. Um, it won't just be on planets that we can already di- directly image um, because by the time, and it's similar to Joel's um, point of like these blue skies things, we have no idea when we're actually going to start using them. Um, the kind of the problem with directly imaging exoplanets is that you've got to be really, really far away. And those one those planets are generally not in the habitable zones, so they're not actually desirable targets for this technology anyway. Um so there are thoughts that LUVOIR, which is the um large UV optical infrared surveyor, um, which is a an enormous space based telescope, um which is supposed um, it's still a concept but the proposal has a mirror diameter six times wider than one on the Hubble space telescope so we'd be able to do quite a lot with it um, and um, something like that which would probably launch in say the mid 2030s um would be something that we could do with uh do exoplanet uh circular polarized light exploration with Alternatively, we could look closer to home. Um, So we actually talk about um, whether or not uh, extraterrestrial life exists elsewhere in the solar system. So take Europa or Enceladus moons. Um, If you actually took one of these detectors and aimed it at these moons, would we see socially polarized light from them? Um, And would there be any other potential source for it? If we saw them, um, it wouldn't be a definitive detection, but it would definitely um, make it improve the case for sending rovers and probes to those planets to actually specifically look for life and not just be like, what's here? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a really cool uh, development. Um, and I should probably name the person behind it. I have it written down. Um, yeah, uh, Fran Snick. Who is an astronomer at Leiden in the Netherlands uh, and a co-author, um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a group of uh, researchers based in the Netherlands um, who have done this.
3: That's really interesting. So we're not miles and miles away from being able to point telescopes at relatively near, nearby objects and saying it's life, Jim, but not as we know it.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, and from here on out, all astronomers will be known as Jim or. Jim Jim, Jim Spock. Do you Bush. want me to
3: just list Star Trek characters? Yeah, please?
0: well, no, I I, I, I want more <laughs> a female version of Jim. Uh, Jemima. Jemima? I don't know. I just, yeah, anyway. The
1: broadcast was Jim, 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 Jim. Jemima,
0: Jim, 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 Jemima. Jim, Jemima. Jim, 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 you you
3: Jim, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim,
0: Jim, 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 Jim now that we've completely derailed ourselves, uh let us move on then to the night sky. All this circularly polarised light has made me want to go and look through a telescope with my eyes, which can't see circularly polarised light because I'm not a mantis shrimp. However, if you are a mantis shrimp and you want to try and see what is in the night sky, uh you can listen right now to Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. If you're not a mantis shrimp, have a listen anyway because you can still see things.
5: The night sky for September 2019. Well at least we don't have to wait up so late to see a dark sky, assuming of course the moon isn't too high in the sky. The three constellations, Lyra with Vega, Cygnus with Deneb, and Aquila with Altair, are still visible high up towards, slightly towards the southwest. Those three stars make up what's called the Summer Triangle, but as it gets darker earlier in the evening, it's actually still visible well into the late autumn. And as I've often said, if with binoculars you start at Altair, the lowest of the three, and work your way up towards Vega, about a third of the way you might come across a nice little asterism, formerly Brocky's Cluster, but we all call it the Coat Hanger. It looks like an upside-down Coat Hanger. Over to the left is a rather faint, but rather sweet constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. Now moving over and rising towards the south as the evening progresses is Pegasus, the upside down winged horse. It gives you one way of finding the nearest giant galaxy to us, Andromeda. If one starts at the top left hand corner of the square of Pegas- Pegasus, which is actually in Andromeda, it's called Alpha Rats. go To the left, one star, around a little bit, to the next bright star, then fork right, 90 degrees, to another fairly bright star, and the same distance again, even with your eyes on a dark night or with binoculars, you should see a fuzzy blob, and that's the Andromeda galaxy. Now, high above Andromeda is the constellation of Cassiopeia, and the three rightmost stars form a V, And that's another way to find Andromeda. Just follow the angle of the arrow and you will actually find the Andromeda galaxy. So there's some nice things to see in the southern sky during the month. Well, what about the planets? Well, we don't have a a great uh, number of planets to see because three of them are essentially behind the Sun. But the other night I observed both Jupiter and Saturn low in the south towards the southwest Jupiter shines on the 1st of September magnitude minus 2.2, falling a bit to minus 2 during the month. And it can be seen in the south as darkness falls. As the month progresses, its angular size drops from 39 to 36 arc seconds. That's still pretty good. So you can see features on the surface like the great red spot and the bands, the equatorial bands. And on the night sky page, just search for night sky journal. I give a list of the rather few times when it's dark that the great red spot becoming rather less great nowadays will be facing the earth. It's now moving eastwards again having stopped its retrograde motion back in August so it's moving away from Antares in Scorpius initially lying some 7 degrees up and to its left. Sadly it's heading well towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic. So as it appears in twilight, will only have an elevation of around 13 degrees. With such a low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will take its toll. And as I saw the other night, you get a little bit of colour fringing. There's a device called an atmospheric dispersion corrector. You can buy it for just over £100. It uses two prisms to try and compensate for the effects of the atmosphere and that would probably help you improve your view of the giant planet. Now Saturn, it crosses the meridian, so it's highest in the sky, but still only around 13, 14 degrees, at around 9pm BST, as September begins. Its disk is 17.6 arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still nicely tilted from the line of sight, span some 41 arc seconds across. And by month's end, It'll be best seen around 8pm when lying just west of south. During the month the brightness falls from plus 0.3 to plus 0.5 and the angular size drops to 16.9 arc seconds. Again, lying in the southwestern side of the Milky Way, it's at the lowest point of the ecliptic and sadly it will take some years before it rises up to higher elevations. But I could suggest that you travel down to Australia, New Zealand, or South Africa, when both Saturn and Jupiter are very high in the sky. Mercury passes behind the Sun, and that's called superior conjunction, on the night of September the 3rd 4th, so will not be visible this month. Likewise, Mars, which passes behind the Sun on September the 2nd, lies too close to the Sun to be visible. We'll have to wait until about the end of October, to spot it in the pre-dawn sky at the start of its next apparition. Though Venus went behind the sun on the 14th of August, sadly by month's end it will be setting in the west-southwest about 30 minutes after sunset, but will be very difficult to see due to the fact that the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon, so Venus will have a very low elevation. You might well need binoculars to spot it But please, do not use them until after the sun has set. Well, finally, a few highlights. Well, I've mentioned Saturn, and on the night sky page it talks quite a bit about Saturn. It rotates quickly with a day of just ten and a half hours, so it bulges slightly, appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, but their colours are muted in comparison. And the thing that makes Saturn stand out, of course, is its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, easily seen in a small telescope, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division. But lying within ring B and far less bright and difficult to spot is the C or crepe ring. Now on the night sky page, I give a little charts to find some of the nice things to see in the sky. I've mentioned the globular cluster in Hercules M13 and the double-double in Lyra. Two stars which with binoculars appear as a double star, but with a telescope under good seeing, each of those two stars is itself a double. Later in September is a good time to look high in the southeast towards the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus. Just into the border of Perseus is a rather lovely pair of clusters called the double cluster. Little Smudge, perhaps with your unaided eye, or with binoculars or a small telescope, can look very pretty. And then down in Perseus is the star Algol, called the Demon Star. It's an eclipsing binary system. Now normally, the pair has a steady magnitude of plus 2.2. But every 2.86 days, this briefly drops to magnitude plus 3.4. Two times when you might just spot that in universal time are on the 12th at 23.43 and the 15th at 20.31. It is a month, given the smallish or medium-sized telescope, to find Neptune. On the nights of the 5th to the 9th is a great time to look for it, as it's very close to the 4th magnitude star Phi Aquarii. There's a star chart on the night sky page. With a magnitude of 7.8, large binoculars or a small telescope will be required to spot it. A medium aperture telescope will reveal Neptune's disk, showing a hint of blue-grey. And with such a telescope, you might also be able to spot its 14th magnitude moon, Triton. And on the night of the 5th 6th of September, it lies just 13 arc seconds from Phi Aquarii. So if you can find that star, you should be able to spot Neptune. On September the 9th, you'll find Jupiter quite close towards the moon a day after first quarter. And I usually mention a couple of objects or an object or so on the moon. And a good night to observe two great lunar craters is the night or the evening of September the 8th. Because the Terminator lies close to them, and it makes all the details show up much better. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, which is about 100 million years old, has a diameter of 85 kilometers, and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. Copernicus on the other hand is much older at about 800 million years old it lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains it's 93 kilometres wide and nearly 4 kilometres deep there's a classic terrace crater with a telescope you can actually see the walls stepping down like a teles with a telescope you can actually see the walls stepping down like a terrace. And both, of course, can be seen with reasonable-sized binoculars. So I do hope, now with darker skies, and hopefully some clear skies, we haven't had many of those in August, I must say, you'll have a chance to have a look at our lovely Northern Hemisphere sky.
1: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Moghasanu and Samuel Lesk with the night sky where you are.
6: New Zealand. Hi everyone. We are here at Space Place at Cat Observatory, holding galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favorite place to be, with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshano. And
7: I'm Samuel Liskey. Space Place is our historical astronomy icon here in New Zealand we are located right at the heart of our capital city
6: and we're so lucky to be among the capital cities in the world from where you can still see the Milky Way and we're bringing you the night sky in September along with a special guest Alina Hi,
8: hi. <laughs> I'm Alina. I'm from Almaty, Kazakhstan, and I'm visiting New Zealand on the Watson Fellowship, I'm studying around astronomy around the world and how it inspires everyone and why people like to look up the night nice sky.
7: It's awesome that you're with us. Did you know that on the 23rd of September, in the Northern Hemisphere, the seasons change? We're here in New Zealand on the 1st of September that it becomes spring and we say goodbye to winter. That's because in the southern hemisphere we've got a heat more ocean than land. And did you also know that you can spot more than four planets in the sky in September? Wow!
6: Prepare your telescope. If you don't have telescopes, join us at Space Place at Carter Observatory where we have telescope viewings. Every Tuesday, Friday and Saturday nights clear skies or if you miss Sam's course, Telescope 101, we will have another Telescope 101 course in December.
7: Or prepare your binoculars.
6: A little bit about September.
8: Uh, so, September comes from the Latin word septum, which means seven. This is because in the old Roman calendar it was the seventh month, rather than the ninth, as it is today. The old Roman calendar used to only have ten months, until Julius Caesar introduced a new Julian calendar was twelve months.
7: Which he named after himself.
8: <laughs> September has 30 days and marks the autumn season in the northern hemisphere and spring in the Southern Hemisphere. This is the time of harvest and when many schools start their new school year in the Northern Hemisphere. Here in New Zealand, it is the month when we celebrate the September equinox when the day is equal to the night. What's the sun up to?
7: sun rises at 6.47am on the first day of September and earlier and earlier every day all through the month. And on the 28th of September, it rises at one minute past six. However, the clock will shift by one hour so on the 30th of September it will rise at 6.57pm. Wow. The sun sets at 5.55pm on the 1st of September and later and later until it sets at 7.24pm on the 30th of September. The days are getting longer. Finally. Mm-hmm.
6: Well, actually, we're not really happy about that because we have shorter nights so then we don't get to see as many stars That's as we did in the winter months.
7: But we can guarantee we'll get a few lots of cold EMS still
6: right which will keep us even more inside the house
7: yes
6: (laughs) September 23rd marks the September equinox here in New Zealand is known as the vernal equinox and that's when
7: spring's already begun
6: so we can get ready for warmer and longer days I wish as you just said on the equinox the day and night are roughly the same length the word equinox comes from Latin words equal and nox is night as the month goes the days will be longer than the night until we reach summer solstice when Sam is going to teach his uh, other telescope 101 course. The equinoxes occur only twice per year, so this is a very special astronomical event of the year and you experience it every September. In September, the sun transits the first the zodiacal constellation of Leo.
7: And then moves into Virgo on the 17th of September, where it stays until October the thirty first. The zodiacal constellations are those stars visible behind the plane of our solar system, about eight degrees each side of the ecliptic.
6: This is why we say they form a band in the sky called the zodiacal band.
7: Since the sun is transiting both the space we call Leo and Virgo, it means we cannot see the stars in these constellations because they are behind the sun.
6: It's not up through the sun.
7: And you'll go blind.
6: Unless?
7: You've got a solar telescope, and it's well-maintained, and you know it is in tip-top condition. And then you can look at the sun.
6: What if it isn't?
7: Well, then don't look it through it, because you'll go blind.
6: All okay. right. So, the sun in Virgo only means only one thing, opposite the sun, that 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiac band, is Pisces. Pisces will rise just after sunset and will be visible all night long. In September, the constellation of Scorpius is the fishhook of Maui that drives the Milky Way down from the sky here in Aotearoa. And we still get to admire the amazing galactic center and the Milky Way Kiwi inside it. We'll talk about Scorpius in a moment. Uh, many cultures
8: and languages have various names for the Milky Way. In Kazakh, the Milky Way is called Kusjola, meaning the bird's road. In addition to the Milky Way, if you're stargazing you from somewhere with very dark skies, you can spot what is called a zodiacal light. It's a cone-shaped light that stretches from low on the horizon along the ecliptic. The ecliptic marks the plane of our solar system bearing the zodiacal constellations. The ecliptic is a great circle in the celestial sphere representing the sun's apparent path during the year. So-called because lunar and solar eclipses can only occur when the moon crosses it. The zodiacal light is the light that we see reflected from dust and ice particles in the plane of our own solar system. How cool is that? So in the sky we can see both the galaxy that we inhabit and the solar system, two completely different scales. Yeah, it's
7: amazing. This month you can see many planets, both with just your naked eye and with the help of telescopes or binoculars. We continue to see Jupiter near the constellation of Scorpius throughout the month of September in the evening sky. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system and mostly consists of gas. It takes Jupiter about 12 years to make its way around the sun, so coincidentally, we can see Jupiter in, in different zodiacal signs around the ecliptic each year. Next year, look out for this planet near the constellation Sagittarius.
6: That's why uh, in the Chinese zodiac, each sign lasts for a year. It was based on Jupiter's observations. Some Kazakh books say that Jupiter used
8: to be named Yesek Kurgan, which translates as literally "someone who killed the donkeys." No. Oh. And this was based on a legend where the merchants had to uh, move the cattle from one village to another, and they had to do it when Venus rose in the morning sky. However, they'd mistaken Jupiter for Venus, and they left too early, so their journey was too long and all the donkeys died. But some people don't believe that could be the sort of explanation or the name for Jupiter, so they think that Jupiter actually means Yisqa which means the
6: ancient star. Mm. Wow, oh, there so must be a lot of donkeys in the... Or maybe not donkeys anymore. Wow, that's <laughs> of Saturn. We can also enjoy the view of Saturn this month again. Near Sagittarius, Saturn, with its magnificent rings, continues to grace us with its presence. You can easily see the rings through a telescope here at Space But unfortunately, you cannot discern the rings with just your eyes. And Galileo Galilei tried to look at uh, those rings with a telescope. He thought he saw ears on 4 Saturn. <laughs>
7: Turns out it was rings, which look a whole lot better.
6: Other planets in our solar system have rings. Saturn's rings are very bright for us to see. They're not going to be there for too long. They're going to be gone in about 300,000 years, or so I heard, in place. Mars will have rings because one of Mars' moons will kind of like come and smash into the planet and also it is believed that Neptune will be another planet that will have rings and both these planets will destroy their moons
7: to do so. And of course Jupiter Mm -hmm. has rings but you can't see them unless you've got a special infrared camera. You can also catch a view of the planet Venus just after the sun sets later in the month. Venus is often referred to as the evening or morning star because it can be seen just before sunrise and after sunset near the sun.
8: Ancient Catholic nomads called the evening appearance of Venus the shepherd star because its appearance coincided with when the cattle needed to be driven home. On the other hand, the morning Venus was called Chopan and it was associated with a young woman and the foremother of the Kazakhs.
7: Venus is also joined by Mercury in September, although much fainter. You can see Mercury paired close with Venus later in September, also right following sunset. Mercury is the closest planet to the Sun in our solar system and can be difficult to observe, but it's possible if you time it right. It's actually quite bright, so it's quite not too bad, to you. you've just got to know where to look. Interestingly, Mercury is the closest planet to Earth, on average,
6: because it's so close to the Sun. You would think well, it would be Mars. Yeah. Or Venus,
7: the most, most of the time, those ones are like the other side of the sun. Right. Yeah, the little trick, but it's trivia. Venus
6: is, trivia. is star, too. Yeah.
7: Yeah.
6: Or Venus is theoretically when they're very close, the to, closest to planet. Mm.
7: In the late evening and morning sky, you can see the furthest planet from the sun in the solar system, Neptune, on the eastern skies this month. Don't try looking for it with your naked eye. As it is the only planet our solar system not visible to the naked eye. But with some help from telescopes or binoculars, you can see this ice giant planet, and it will look like a bluish dot. Quite a delight to see. Though I imagine you wouldn't be able to see Uranus that easy, would you?
6: Well, uh, we're actually asked this question every single day at Kato Observatory, and
7: um, probably because it sounds funny more than interest in the planet. It,
6: it, yeah, well, this is another yet another planet with rings, and its name is derived from the Greek word for heavens or starry sky, Uranus. It has. It, it's actually an amazing planet if you look at it. it, it first of all, it's got this beautiful aquamarine color. And it wheels around the solar system like a bicycle wheel.
7: It's they should have started with George, though.
6: George, yeah.
7: Then George. we wouldn't have had all of those jokes.
6: The first name <laughs> of that Uranus was George. As Alina has said, it would take a whole separate podcast to talk about Uranus.
8: Yep, it's quite a remarkable planet, but we only have so much time so I just recommend looking out for it yourself and seeing this planet and thinking of all the
6: unique features that it has. Scorpius, Centaurus and the Saturn Cross. This time of the year, as we said before, in Aotearoa, the Maori name for Scorpius is Temata o Maui, the fishhook of Maui that drags the Milky Way from the sky all night long. The constellation Scorpius has a magnificent red supergiant star Antares. It's really impossible to miss on a clear night. It has a very little reddish look,
8: and it looks just like the planet Mars, actually, if you've seen Mars before. In fact, its name is derived from Greek, meaning rival to Ares, Aries being the Greek reference to the god Mars.
7: South of Scorpius, you can find the constellation of Centaurus, a creature that is half-human and half-horse in Greek mythology. Although the constellation itself is more difficult to discern, it contains two very well-known star systems in the Southern Hemisphere, Alpha and Beta Centauri. Alpha Centauri is the closest star system to Earth. It's only about 4.37 light years away, so it takes light 4.37 years to reach it, or that long for the light from there to come here. As a reference, it takes about 8 minutes for light to reach us from the Sun. It's a triple star system, there was an exoplanet discovered orbiting Proxima Centauri, one of the three stars in the system.
6: And Proxima Centauri is actually the closest star to our solar system, and it's a red dwarf, and it has a magnitude of 11, which means that we can actually see Proxima Centauri with a telescope.
7: That's right, just not with your eye. Well, with your eye through a telescope, you
6: Alpha and
8: Beta Centauri can be used as pointers to what is arguably the most well-known constellation in the Southern Hemisphere. The Southern Cross or Crux, it is actually on the New Zealand flag, if you haven't noticed yet. It's seen year-round in New Zealand, which naturally brings us to the next part of our discussion, the circumpolar objects in New Zealand. What does that mean, circumpolar objects?
7: Well, circumpolar objects are objects that rotate around the celestial pole. These objects are above the horizon at all times in a given latitude. For instance, Cassiopeia is circumpolar from Europe, but here in Wellington, we cannot even see it. It's hidden by the Earth. We could if Earth would have been transparent, but it's not. But it's not. I hmm. well, suppose if we had a really high, high tower, you might that went sort of into orbit. Anyway, here on the other hand, we have the are Southern Cross. Are you talking cross. about the
6: um, space elevator? Yeah.
7: We had a space elevator, maybe we could see Cassiopeia. Anyway, here on the other hand, we're in the Southern Cross, that's our circumpolar um, object with the pointers that are also circumpolar. The Diamond Cross and the False Cross are also circumpolar, and Canopus and Akinah are also circumpolar as well. The same for the Magellanic Clouds, the Media Centauri, 47 to the Jewel Box, the Southern Pleiades, Gem Cluster and Omicron the Warram. Being circumpolar, it means that they turn around once every 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's why they're always somewhere else in the sky.
6: you look at them, in September, in the evenings, you will find the Southern Cross in the southwestern part of the sky. So just after sunset, it's kind of like in the 3 o'clock position, heading down, followed by the pointers in the circumpolar zone. Canopus would be at the same time grazing the southern horizon, and because we have so many hills here in Wellington, would be hard to see, you have to wait a few hours for it to come back up. And Achenar and the two Magellanic clouds at sunset would be in the southeastern part of the sky. Bright stars? Okay, so next up,
8: we're. Um, what are some bright stars near the ecliptic? Very close to the ecliptic are Spica in Virgo early in the month. Spica means the head of grain from Latin, actually, and it's the grain that the Virgo constellation is holding. We can also see stars Zubenal Ganubi and Zubenal Shamali in Libra. Well done. And you're, the uh,
7: f- <laughs> you're the only other person on the planet that can pronounce.
8: Oh really? Okay. And we can see Nuki in yeah. Sagittarius, and um, the ecliptic intersects the Milky Way in Scorpius.
7: So the stars of the Milky Way, starting from the center of the galaxy, going north, uh, Shaula, and the sting- which is the stinger of Scorpius. Atria in the Tarangulum Australis. Why are you putting all these ones on the cave and pronounce? Well, I mean, we have to. Right, other bright stars. In the north, we can see the bright star Eltia, in Aquila, the constellation of the eagle, the triangle-shaped constellation in the northeastern skies. Canopus, of course, is there, the brightest star in the southern hemisphere, continues to shine bright and can be seen near the horizon in the southern skies.
6: And, of course, as our listeners can hear, it absolutely doesn't matter how we pronounce the stars because their names were invented very, very long time ago, so we don't even know what these people meant.
7: Yeah, and they probably weren't their greatest spelling.
6: And you can make your own constellations if you want. This is what we've learned
7: here. Hmm. Right. Other stuff in the sky. There's uh, dark patches. We can talk about those.
8: Mickey way we. That's right.
7: The other famous dark patch is the (laughs) Kolsak, other than the Milky Way Kiwi, (laughs) is the Kolsak near the Southern Cross. The Kolsak is also known as the Flounder, which is the Maori name for it. Indeed, if you find a truly dark sky, you will see the resemblance. You really can see it. You You have got to have a dark sky. Yeah. However, talking about naming objects in the sky, the name of Kolsak is also very appropriate as a dark patch made of the interstellar dust matter that's inside the uh, or near the jewel box, or the Kappa Crucis Cluster, NGC 4755.
6: So is that made of coal? Hmm? The interstellar medium is it made of coal?
7: Yeah, because it's a sack of coal. It's actually quite a way away from the jewel box. Hmm.
6: So it's behind, um, in front of the jewel box? No, no, no,
7: it's actually... If you look at um the jewel box... The angular distance, it's, it's actually a little away from
6: it. Hmm. Yeah. Other deep sky objects, some of these uh, deep sky objects that you can point with a telescope, Butterfly Cluster or M6 and Open Cluster in the constellation Scorpius, Wishing Well, um, Open Cluster in Carina and Saturn pin Well Galaxy in Hydra. And actually we looked at some of these objects with the telescope in the last month. So, I not know Tell us about your research and tell us what are you doing in New Zealand? I guess the project
8: that I'm pursuing here on the fellowship is sort of was inspired by the question of why should we look at the sky? even perhaps not always for practical reasons, but more so as a hobby or um, what kind of benefits it has to people. So this year I'll be traveling around and meeting with people that work at different observatories, planetariums, meeting with different astronomical societies and just seeing what inspires and interests people about astronomy. And I guess seeing how it also has connection to I guess the history of the place and um, the connection, the personal connection that people may have with the stars and what kind of benefits it can bring um, to others. But this is such an amazing
6: project and you've chosen to, to do this for your career.
8: Yes, so I'll be pursuing like astronomy professionally I'm starting next fall, but this year is about me learning more the uh, personal side of astronomy and just what it means to uh, many people around the world who love to look at the stars
6: just like me. <laughs> so everyone, if you listen to this podcast and you're going to meet Alina... <laughs> host her no <laughs> she's um, amazing dude. she's been here with us in Wellington what's
8: your background mm. what did you study oh uh, so in university I studied astronomy and physics and also actually classics so some of I guess uh ancient Greek classes too
6: and yeah just finished my uh, undergraduate degree in May. so that classical studies do they help you with the astronomy and with the communication part of it or
8: um I think It was mostly from my own, well I think they just helped me be like a better learner because like when you learn languages I think you learn a lot of useful skills. So not directly applicable to astronomy but um, it was partially inspired by astronomy because so many Greek uh, names that we use in astronomy even today and all the constellations come from there so yeah.
7: What was the sky in Kazakhstan like?
8: Oh. To be honest, to this day, it's like one of the most beautiful skies I've seen. It was probably on a train ride like across Kazakhstan because I think at least like the parts that I was passing on the train were um, not like very densely populated. And I remember like looking out the window and just seeing like really purple and like very like sort of bulging stars and the Orion and just looking out of the the train but I don't go stargazing very often at home just because I live in the city but you know moments like that I remember because it's like very very clear to go out into the countryside and maybe I'll do that once I'm back home
7: (laughs) Have you you been to Star City? When they Uh, they launched the
8: no. no, I actually haven't been. I've been planning to, and uh, yeah, year after year, I uh, you know I study or have like internships in the summer or something, and never have enough time to visit. So, yeah. But that's the goal, I guess. For well, the next time that I'm back home, is definitely to visit it.
7: Oh, much Are
8: you really excited?
1: Yeah.
8: yeah what what made you study astronomy out of everything? I think, well, it's definitely like the big questions I kind of got into astronomy more through like my early interest in math and then physics and then I wanted the more sort of bigger picture questions and that led to astronomy and also I grew up, you know, hearing about Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man in space and even though he wasn't like an astronomer, he was an astronaut, that kind of inspired some thoughts about something related to outer space. <laughs> So yeah, that's how it came out to be, and um, I think actually I love to hear how other people get, become interested, like some people do it through stargazing or, you know, like me through physics or some some other ways, so it's always curious to hear how people like want to study astronomy sun. So that's going kind to of, be yeah, part of your project? That is part of project too, well, uh, yeah. I found out that when talking to a lot of people and asking questions
6: that it's really interesting to find out how they got even interested in astronomy in the first place. So, yeah. I think your project is amazing to travel the world and go to Planetaria to observatories and talk to people about what moves them in the stars and it's, it's a fantastic it's a fantastic opportunity that you created for yourself because you put your hand out to do this research right yeah I mean I really hope that
8: through my travels I guess I can inspire others to sort of you know stop and look at the stars and maybe even if you live in the city to sort of have this the desire to reconnect to maybe environment more and I think it has a lot of good benefits to happiness or outlook on life so yeah, it piques curiosity of a lot of people, and hopefully, like my travels, can inspire
6: others as well. Awesome. <laughs> well, wonderful. We wish you very wonderful, awesome travels. How do you say this in English? We wish you
7: wonderful, awesome, magical
6: travels.
8: <laughs> <laughs> <Musical> travel, <laughs> Thank you around the world. <laughs> uh, I've enjoyed my time in New Zealand a lot, and yeah, I hope every place is just as you know welcoming as it has been here. I want to also thank uh, Zira and Norris for all the information about the Catholic mythology in
6: astronomy. Well, thank you. And we hope we keep in touch and maybe we can have yes, sure. you back in our show and <laughs> tell us about what you've seen on all those uh, beautiful skies around the world. And until next time from Wellington here in New Zealand, Alina and Harikina you know?
7: and Semilisti
6: We wish you a fantastic September and clear skies Always, Always. <laughs> clear, clear skies, skies. <laughs> Bye Bye <laughs>
0: By carefully counting the number of stars in small but representative regions of the sky we find that the total number of stars in the Milky Way is about 400
1: billion <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stars
3: And now, on to the feedback.
0: We, yeah, we haven't got any feedback, um, so please do, do write to us. Uh, we like to know that you're there, um, and we also like to know what you think. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so via a number of different assorted ways, depending on what your favourite method of technology is. Um, so you can contact us through the website at www.judcast.net,
1: Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast.
3: Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jodcast.
0: YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
1: Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jobcast. And
3: don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website.
0: Please send us posts. We really like your postcards and various other postage items.
1: We we are slowly decorating the broadcast studio it's, with uh, we might have things.
0: I think we should probably post another picture of what it looks like in here. It um, is way nicer in here. It's so much nicer in here than it was when in. we moved in and also when we were in the cupboard. Yeah.
1: Um I almost forgot about the cupboard.
0: Yeah, uh, well like, like we've got enough space that we can like move yeah. and not walk into each other. It's great. Anyway, um it's your continued listening that has meant that we were able to justify being given a room. So thank you for housing us.
1: Speaking of thanks... Speaking
0: of thanks, uh, this is the end of the uh, episode. Um, So thank you to Fabio Antonini for the interview. The editors were Adam Abisson, Tjad Bezedenhoit, and Bin Yu. The producer was Michael Wright. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time... JOG On!